We'll hear argument next in case 09291, Thompson versus North American Stainless. Mr. Schnapper. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 704A, Title VII, prohibits the use of third-party reprisals as a method of retaliating against a person who complained to the EEOC or otherwise opposed, dis- opposed discrimination. The text of Section 704A doesn't limit the types of retaliation which are forbidden. The elements of, of the statute are unrelated to that. Uh, the first requirement is that the plaintiff show that discrimination occurred with regard to the individual who engaged in protected activity. In a case like that, like this, that's shown by — would be shown by evidence that they singled out Ms. Regalado and Ms. Regalado's fiancé. They didn't go, uh, go fire anybody else's fiancé. Uh, that was the basis on which this particular action was taken. Secondly, uh, the plaintiff must show that the conduct was uh, discrimination against the person who engaged in protected activity. Um, the, that, that language is e- easily applicable to a situation where you single out, say, a family member or a fiancé. The purpose of that, uh, the complaint can fairly be read to allege, was to punish the person who engaged in protected activity. Um, there are a number of federal statutes that use the word against in precisely this way. Uh, they say that actions cannot be taken um, uh, uh, to, say, um, against a family member of a, uh, a sitting judge or other federal official where the purpose is to act against the official. Is Ms. Regalado still engaged to this fellow? She married him. Huh? So, is she still engaged in Yes. Uh, they're married. Oh, they're married. And they have a lovely two-year-old daughter. Oh, good. Well, why didn't she bring the suit? Um, I, I, th- I think, Your Honor, that uh, your, this Court's Article Three jurisprudence would have precluded her from getting any remedy. The uh, — um, certainly most of the remedies that are needed here, um, the, she, she wouldn't have had Article Three standing uh, to win an award of a back pay to, uh, to her now husband. Um, she couldn't have gotten awarded damages to him. Um, I think if But I'm you've got right, reinstatement on the grounds that uh, his continuing uh, inability to be employed by the company is an ongoing hurt to her? Perhaps. It would depend on the circumstances. Um, in, in this particular case, uh, almost certainly not uh, because of just the, 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 the course of subsequent events. By, uh, it's — she subsequently left the company. At this point, they live nowhere near suppose that an employer dismiss, Suppose an employer dismisses an employee on an impermissible ground, impermissible under Title VII, uh, and is a very valuable employee. Can the shareholder sue uh, on the ground that uh, the shareholder is now injured because the company is worth less, having lost this employee? Um, sue under Title VII? I, I don't believe so, Your Honor. I don't believe so. Um, the, uh, but the situation here is, is, is different than that. Um, because you start with somebody who is, who is uh, unlike the shareholders, there's no Title VII violation as to them. Regalato is complaining of sex discrimination, and then she said, because I made a complaint, they retaliated against me. Shareholders are not in that position because there was no initial uh, charge they 
Yeah. No, it's the same hypothetical. It's, we'll just say Regalado, all the same facts, except she's very valuable to the company. The company's now worth less shareholder suits. Right. I, I think the thrust of your question was, is, are the shareholders like Thompson? And, and I, I think, I think the Thompson situation is, is quite different. He was uh, the, the very target of the illegal act. Uh, the, the illegality occurs only by means of dismissing him. Well, the question is whether he's aggrieved within the meaning of Title VII, right? That, that is the other question. And your argument is that if there's injury in fact sufficient to satisfy Article III of the Constitution, then the person is aggrieved. Um, the, uh, the court's decision in Traficante goes that far. Um, and uh, in practice, it has not proved a problem under Title VIII. It's, that's generally been under this understanding here. But your, is it your argument that we have — that we should go that far? We you should do say not, if there's injury, not, we yeah. don't — we don't need to go that you far. You do not need to go that Where far. Where do we draw the line? Well, I think — I think the government has I, — I think as far as you need to go, which is not the same as saying that's as far as the law goes, is the uh, standard articulated by the government. Uh, as in McCready, where the uh, action against Thompson was the very method by which the law was violated, that — that would satisfy uh, the, the requirement of person agreed. Where does uh, that come from? Where does that test come from? Um, Runner, I, I don't — I think that's as far as you need to go in this case. I think the standard of, of aggrieved is broader than that. But the um, — in as this has played out in the lower courts since Traficante, there's a wide range of different kinds of circumstances under which uh, the Traficante rule has been invoked in Title VII cases. We're not asking you to address all of those. But I understand the argument. I don't really — it's not too helpful, at least to me, to say uh, you, as far as you, we need to go in order to reverse. That's really not how the statute ought to be interpreted, I would say. What does it mean? What, you know, I understand the argument that aggrieved means all the way to uh, what's the, the, all that's necessary is what is necessary to satisfy the Constitution. Uh, and and I, I understand that argument. It's a very broad argument uh, with a lot of implications. But if, you, if that's not correct, then what is the correct test and where does it come from? Well, I, Your Honor, I think that there are uh, two other limitations that would be applicable here, as indeed they would have been under Title VIII. Uh, first one is proximate cause, which will — cut off a lot of injuries down the road. Um, and um, uh, a Title VII is adopted against the background of proximate cause rules, and there — I don't think — we don't contend that, that in using the word person aggrieved, they meant — Congress meant to set those aside. Secondly, um, the uh, — I think a fair reading of the word aggrieved is that uh, it, it is — aggrieved is both, in ordinary English, frankly, broader and narrower than injured. Um, it is broader, uh, and that's, of course, not your concern, in the sense that it covers people who haven't been injured yet but might be injured in the future. Um, but it also uh, has an, a second element, which is that the, uh, uh, the action at issue involves some sort of a wrong. If, if someone deliberately knocks me down, I'm pr- injured, I'm probably aggrieved, but not if I'm carrying a football in the middle of a football game. That's a legitimate thing to do. So I think that there has to be a wrong, and, and the wrong has to be the, the, the basis of the, of the plaintiff's objection. You could have a situation where the plaintiff really didn't care one way or another why, why that, that harm had happened. Um, 
It was uh, — but in this case, that's precisely why Thompson complains. He's not suggesting that he, it, he would be wronged if he were ever fired at all. He is aggrieved because he was fired for a reason that was an improper reason. Um, and, and, and we think those are, those are uh, what, limiting what, principles. What do we do with the argument that says there's a middle uh, step? You can — you have the sex discrimination complainant, and then you have Thompson, who is aggrieved in the sense that he was hurt, he was injured. But they say there's no cause of action. There's no statutory cause of action for Thompson. Well, the the, the we, we think that's just clearly wrong. The statute provides a cause of action. If, if I might go back to the, how that came up in the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals appears to have assumed that third-party reprisals are unlawful. It's not entirely clear. Um, and then in footnote one, um, the Court of Appeals said that uh, — that Thompson was aggrieved. Notwithstanding that, they then went on to say that there's no cause of action in the statute, they said, in, in Section 704A. Uh, that really doesn't make any sense. The, the statute provides an express cause of action. It says um, that individual, certain individuals, if the requirements are met, can bring lawsuits. So the question is, as, as, as Justice uh, Alito put it, uh, and, and, and was put before, which is whether the plaintiff is aggrieved. But if he's aggrieved, he's clearly got a cause of action. Now, suppose Thompson were not uh, Regalado's fiance at the time. Suppose they were just they were just good friends. Would and, and everything else happened, and he alleged that he was fired uh, in retaliation for her engaging in protective conduct. The way the company wanted to get at her was by firing her friend. Would that be enough? Well, the, the plaintiff would have to prove two things. First of all, the plaintiff would have to prove that that was indeed the company's motive for picking him to fire him. Secondly, under this Court's decision in Burlington Northern, the plaintiff would have to show that this was a retaliatory action sufficiently serious that it was — it would likely persuade a reasonable employee in Regalado's position to dissuade her complaining. And, and, and that's why uh, we've agreed with the Respondent's contention that um, — that they're entitled to an evidentiary determination about whether that standard was met here. So that's an important limiting principle. And it, how does that translate? How does that Burlington uh, Northern standard translate into the situation in which there is some sort of relationship between the, the person who engaged in the protected conduct and the person who suffers the adverse employment action? That's what's troubling to me about, about the theory, where it's a fiancé, it's uh, that's a relatively strong case, but I can imagine a whole spectrum of cases in which there is a lesser relationship between those two persons. And it would — if — unless there's a clear line there someplace, th this theory is rather troubling. Well, I, I can think — help, Can you help provide where the clear line is? Does it go to — does it include simply a good friend? Does it include somebody who just has lunch in the cafeteria every day? with the person who engaged in the protective conduct, somebody who once dated the person who uh, engaged in the protective conduct? Are these all questions that have to go to a jury? Um, I, they wouldn't all have to go to a jury. I mean, the, the, the problem, as you cast it, is that the standard in Burlington Northern, no offense, isn't a bright line. It is the standard which it is. And the same question could arise about other methods of retaliation. What about um, — uh, uh, you know, what, what about cutting some out of five meetings or ten meetings? Uh, 
that that same problem exists under Burlington Northern no matter what. Why, well, can't, why can't they get — the first question you back is just a confusion in my mind. Why couldn't she bring this suit? And she says, I was discriminated against because they did A, B, C, D to him. And the remedy is cure the way in which I was discriminated against. And to cure that way, you would have to make the man whole in respect to those elements that we're discriminating against. <laughs> you give him back pay, you restore him, you do everything you'd normally have to do, because otherwise she is suffering the kind of injury, though it was to him, that amounts to discrimination for opposing a practice. What's wrong with that theory? I think that that kind of remedy would pose very serious problems under Article 3. Why? Because Why? money isn't going to her. So what? She's hurt. Be- I suppose it was a child that they — what they — or suppose they robbed they, — they robbed the, the judge's wife in order to get him to do something. And, and that's a crime. And suppose there's a civil statute. The judge says the way you cure what you did to get me to do something is you make me whole. And in that instance, it requires making her whole. What's the Article 3 problem? Well, anyway, I, I, mean, I don't I know mean, that this is I, crucial, but I'm, I'm, I'm just Well, I, I, think it, I, yeah. I think it is of some, some importance yeah. here. I mean, it, 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 the, the ordinarily, uh, um, Article 3 would bar me from suing for an award of money to be paid to somebody else. But that's because the award of money to be paid for somebody else, their absence of money didn't hurt you. But we're there, for example, if you're a trustee, you certainly could sue to get the beneficiary put back. Uh, so there are dozens of cases where you can sue to get somebody else paid back money. And, and why, why isn't this one of them? But anyway, I I'm not, don't want to pursue it beyond a quick answer because there are other things in this case. Well, as I say, I, I, think, I, I think Article 3 would be — would be a, uh, a major obstacle there. Well, I understood your brief, and certainly the government's brief, to take a very expansive view of what type of retaliation would give rise to a cause of action uh, by uh, the, the directly harmed employee. Now you seem to be suggesting that that employee would not have Article Three standing to bring an action. Um, I, I think we've got a situation here in which this violates the rights of Regalado, but Regalado's ability to herself bring a lawsuit and get a remedy uh, is limited. Uh, and you're that, not, you're that not taking the position that she could not have sued for retaliation. It would be awkward because the, he is, it's his injury uh, that requires compensation. But I, are you saying that she could not have brought a retaliation suit? Um, it's possible she could bring a suit. The question would be whether she had Article Three standing to seek the remedy that she was then seeking, which would often be a problem. That would be uh, because your time is, is running. The Americans with Disabilities Act has an explicit provision that allows suits by adversely affected close relatives. Uh, you are essentially asking us to read that provision, which is stated expressly in the ADA. If I might respond to that briefly, you're referring to Section 12112B4 of the ADA. Um, That is a provision directed at a very different problem, which is uh, not associations between employees. It's it's directed at employers who might refuse to hire a worker 
because, for example, he had or, or she had a, a child with a disability. The uh, uh, EEOC's commentaries on the regs about this explain it. It is, it is not concerned with employee relations. It's concerned with discrimination against a worker, prospective worker, typically because they have a family member who has a disability. The employer has preconceptions about whether they'll be good workers based on that. But the Fair Thank Housing you. Act has a definition of injury that would include Mr. Thompson, and that's not in this Act, that express language. Um, that's correct, Your Honor. That, that statute was adopted somewhat later. There are uh, large numbers of statutes that have rather general language like person aggrieved. But I think that in the case of the Housing Act, uh, that language um, fairly describes the ordinary English meaning of aggrieved. Sometimes Congress does that. There are other definitions in the Fair Housing Act like that, like the definition of dwelling. Doesn't mean dwelling means something else everywhere else in the U.S. Code. Just Congress in any sense decided to spell out what everyone, I think, would understood the word to have meant. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Kruger? Mr. Chief Justice, and one may it please the Court. When an employer fires an employee as a means of retaliating against a relative or close associate who's filed an EEOC charge, the employee who has been fired is entitled under Title VII to go to court and seek appropriate remedies, even if he hasn't himself engaged in protected activity. Could I ask you, you this? Suppose — go ahead. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of an employer, and you — you think you, you want to take an adverse employment action against employee A. You think you have good grounds for doing that, but you want — before you do it, you want to know whether you're potentially opening yourself up to a retaliation claim. Now, what is the employer supposed to do then? You say, well, let's — we need to survey everybody who is engaged in protected conduct, and now we need to see whether this person who we're thinking of taking the adverse employment action against has a, quote-unquote, close relationship with any of those people. So what do you do? You call everybody in from the com company and you say, now, is, uh, you know, was it, are these people dating? Did they once date? Are, are they good friends? Uh, what are you supposed to do? Justice Alito, we're not arguing for a test that would create a kind of protection for a so-called right of association under Title VII. It's not the case that so long as somebody is associated with somebody who's complained about discrimination, they would be automatically protected under the test that we're advocating. The reason the relationship is important in this case is because it tends to render plausible the argument that there's a causal connection between the adverse action visited on no, the I understand that. I, I do understand that. But I wish you to — I'd like you to answer my question. Uh, does the employer have to keep uh, a journal on the uh, uh, intimate or uh, casual relationships between all of its employees so that it knows what it's — it's opening itself up to one. It wants to take an action against somebody. No, I somebody. think it's actually quite to the contrary. I think if the employer doesn't know about the relationship, any allegation like the allegation that we have in this case simply isn't going to be plausible. It's not going to be a plausible contention that there's a relationship between one employee's protected activity and an adverse action visited on the plaintiff. Well, but you say — but it won't be because of the degree of connection between the, the retaliated against employee and the means of retaliating. I understood your brief. I'm just looking at page 6. The limitation you propose is someone, someone close to him. 
The anti-retaliation provision prohibits an employer from firing an employee because someone close to him filed an EEOC complaint. And I guess I have the same concern that we've been discussing for a little while. How are we supposed to tell, or how is an employer supposed to tell, whether somebody is close enough or not? Well, there's — I don't think that there's any reason for the Court to try to fashion a hard and fast rule that identifies some relationships that are close enough and others that aren't. The question in every case is the question that's posed by this Court's standard in Burlington Northern. Was this an action that a reasonable employee would have considered materially adverse? Would it have been — Burlington Northern, of course, is quite different because you're just — you're dealing with the obvious plaintiff in that case. Your concern is confined to a particular person. In this hypothetical, it's an unlimited universe that you don't have any reason to know where it ends. Well, it's certainly going to be important whenever a plaintiff brings a suit like this, both to establish that the employer knew of the relationship and the relationship was one that is of sufficient closeness that a reasonable employee might be deterred from making or supporting part of discrimination. Why does that matter under your theory? Let's assume different, slightly different, that they're just coworkers, um, but a coworker who has expressed sympathy for the um, uh, discriminated person has spoken about them in a favorable light or has tried to defend them. Would that person be protected from being fired if well, the intent was to retaliate against the person complaining of discrimination by getting rid of their friend who's supporting them? In that scenario, I think that that person would have a cause of action, but for a different reason. Under this Court's decision in Crawford, that person would probably be considered to be a person who had opposed the discrimination and for that reason would themselves have engaged in the procedure. So an opposer is anyone who, who, um, who assists? That's our understanding of what this Court held in, in the Crawford But let's case. assume they did it just in private, but the employer knew it. They overheard a conversation between the close friend and the employee saying, I really am in support of you. I know you've been treated unfairly. I like you. I like you working here. Could that person be close enough? I think that, again, I think it's a question that sort of turns on whether a, a jury would find the reasonable employee in the position of the person who had engaged in protect activity would be deterred from making or supporting a charge of discrimination if they knew the consequence was that their best friend would be fired. Well, I don't want to have to go before a jury as an employer all the time. I, I, want, I want a safe harbor. I don't even want to mess with people that might, that might be buying a lawsuit. And you're telling me, well, you know, I can't help you. You have to go before a jury, say, if this person was close enough. Why can't we say uh, members of family and fiancés? Would, 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 would that be a nice rule? Well, I think that it would be an essentially arbitrary rule. I know. I, the, at the end of the day, I mean, the question is just the question that the Court assigned under Burlington Northern. It's a question that turns on the specific facts and context of a, a specific case. Yeah, but I think as, as the, the Chief court's... said, it, it, it spreads much further than Burlington Northern. Burlington Northern, at least you know who it is you have to be careful with, the well, person who's, you know, who's made a complaint. But, but with what you're proposing, my goodness, I, I don't know who it is I have to be careful with. Well, an employer always is going to have to be careful to some degree not to visit uh, harm on an employee for retaliatory reasons. Well, you're, you're a reasonable person. What would you say is the degree of closeness that's required? I don't think that there's any way to fashion a hard and fast rule. The fact of the matter is that most of the cases that have arisen that have raised third-party retaliation 
um, arguments, which are indeed cognizable under a number of, of uh, employment statutes, and I don't think respondent disputes that they are rightly so, largely concerned relationships like relationship between parent and child, between husband and wife. Um, in one case, under the Occupational Safety and Health Act, it's, it's uh, involved a relationship between uh, very good friends in the workplace, whereas there is a D.C. Court of Appeals decision that holds that uh, a merely professional relationship that doesn't exhibit that degree of personal affection isn't sufficiently close. But very good friends is enough? I think that a reasonable employee who knows that the consequence of making or supporting a charge of discrimination is going to be that their best friend at work is going to be fired may be deterred from engaging in protected activity. In, in your view, could Regalado have brought this suit or brought a suit? Yes, Justice Kennedy, we do think that Regalado could have brought a suit in her own right because she, too, is a person aggrieved within the meaning of the statute. Well, if that is so, why doesn't that vindicate uh, the purposes of the Act? Well, for two reasons, Justice Kennedy. First of all, Regalado here didn't sue, just like most people in her position didn't sue, because mostly people who were charged with the enforcement of Title VII under, as the private attorney generals under the statutory scheme will assume that the person who lost their job rather well, than the person Well, but I, I assume that part of the thrust of your argument is that this was designed to hurt this in Regalado, that she was hurt, that this was injurious. Uh, then you say, oh, well, it's not important enough for her to sue. So somebody that's more remote can sue. That's an odd rule. Well, I think in that situation, she certainly, she might sue, but she might also assume that it ought to be her fiancé, whose job was actually lost, who well, ought to they carry the mantle. can't that? They might be I mean, it's not like you're dealing with strangers. That's the whole point. It's someone close to them. I, on the one hand, you're saying, well, you only have to worry about people really close. And then your response to this line of questioning is, well, the other person might not sue. They're going to sit around and say, you sue, no, you sue. Well, the, the fact that they were close at the time of the retaliatory <coughs> act doesn't necessarily mean that they might still be close at the time it's uh, they need and, to and decide whether or not to the, press the charges. The point that you were first making, I thought, was these are lay people. They don't have a lawyer. They would naturally think that the person who was hurt would be the one to sue. That's exactly right, Justice Ginsburg. And I think the other well, why, why is one, that a problem? You're dealing with people who are close. They assume the person who was hurt the person retaliated against uh, would sue. Well, why, why don't they? You said that person has a valid suit. They may not be close by the they're, time. They're lay people. They don't know about Article 3. <laughs> well, that is, that is certainly one point. But I think even if they were perfectly informed, and the rule that this Court announced was one that put Regalado in the driver's seat entirely with respect to whether or not to pursue the cause of action under Title VII, there would still be a problem with respect to whether or not she could seek full relief, the relief well, If somebody in Thompson's position filed a charge with the EEOC, couldn't the EEOC tell him you're the wrong person to sue? It conceivably could. The EEOC that is, thinks he's the right person. Well, EEOC certainly does think that he's the right person if this court were to say that the EEOC is wrong. If the rule is otherwise, why couldn't they provide advice? The EEOC is ordinarily not in the business of advising people who file charges with respect to charges that other people might file um, for confidentiality reasons, among other reasons. Thank you, Ms. Kruger. Ms. Lathrow. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Eric Thompson does not allege that he was discriminated against. But Title VII is a discrimination statute. The only person who alleges that they were — that was — Do you, if Regalado had sued and said, assume the fact — I know that you 
claim it didn't happen. They fired my fiancé to retaliate against me. Yes, Your Honor. Do you agree with your adversary that she wouldn't have Article Three standing to seek reinstatement or back pay for her fiancé? I don't — I do think she could seek reinstatement through the general equitable relief of the Court. Um, in terms of back pay, I don't see why she couldn't uh, recover that for him. But in terms of his coming back to work — I'd like he, to see that case next. I'm sorry? And see what position you take the next time. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you willing to commit to your, your company to that position today? I won't do that to you. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, no one is seeking damages for uh, Ms. Regalado in this case. Eric Thompson is here to use her rights to recover for her alleged discrimination based upon her conduct. Yeah, but if, if you know, if you concede that, that she could have sued, then what's the big deal? Then we still have the same problem that the employer doesn't know whom, whom he has to treat with kid gloves. What's the difference whether, whether when the law comes down on him, it's, uh, it, it's, it's uh, she who brings the suit or her fiancé? He's worried about the suit. He still doesn't know whom he has to be careful with. I, I agree that she can bring the cause of action based upon Burlington and the way that the language is written in Burlington. I think it's very, very right. broad. And so she has — but Burlington says she has to prove injury, that retaliation without injury is not actionable. Okay. So, so if that, she that's can, your only point, not that, not that it's going to be very difficult for employers to figure out who can, who can uh, be protected and who can't. You, you abandon that, that, that issue. No, I think if Regalado has the right to bring a cause of action, it is going to be very difficult. Um, But I think that the way that Burlington reads now, and that is whether someone would be dissuaded, if that is harm to her, then she could bring the cause of action. What's difficult about applying the Burlington standard is you could have someone who's dissuaded from filing a claim but may not be harmed. For example, if an employer announced a proposition that it was going to fire an employee at random, whenever someone filed an EEOC charge. I might not file a charge because I wouldn't want someone, even someone who I didn't know, to be terminated. But I wouldn't be injured in that scenario. So, so you say an employer could adopt that policy? I'm sorry? Are you saying an employer could adopt that policy? No, I'm not. Because the person who is so discriminated if an, if an employer says, now if anybody makes a discrimination claim, uh, we're going to fire two other employees just to show you that uh, we run an efficient corporation around here. You, you say that, that, is, that, that, that that's proper or improper? It's improper because the person who was discriminated against would have the right to sue. What wait, wait, who is the person who is discriminated against in the hypothetical? The person who, um, the person who filed the EEOC charge. Okay. What makes this case a little but the, cloudy? But the, per, but the persons, uh, the two people in the hypothetical that are fired, can't sue. They cannot. Not under the not under the discrimination provision of, of Title VII, because they were not discriminated against based upon their conduct. It wasn't anything that they did. And that's what Burlington Northern says that the anti-retaliation provision of Title VII seeks to prevent harm to individuals based upon what they do, based upon their conduct. Well, Those why, two hypotheticals. Why should? In, in, in this World War II Nazi scenario, wh- why, why would the, uh, the woman who caused the random file- firing, why would she bring a lawsuit if these people are really nothing to her? 
she just has a, a guilt of conscience or something? I, mean, I, I don't see why she'd bring the lawsuit. If it was her fiancé, maybe, but, but — She may not, but the EEOC — She might not even like the people who were fired. <laughs> In case, which case, she wouldn't have been injured, so she okay. would have no claim. And if you think about it, if she, if she was not discriminated against, then the other people could not bring a claim for discrimination based upon her. Um, what makes this case a little cloudy is that Eric Thompson is an employee as well, but he doesn't bring this case as an employee. You could very well have Eric Thompson as a spouse who is not employed. So, for example, if Mr. Thompson had been just um, — um, let's make him a spouse, an even closer relationship than a fiancé, and suppose that he — his job, he ran an animal shelter in Carrollton, Kentucky, and it was a benevolent organization, but his only source of revenue was a generous gift from North American Stainless at Christmas time. And in 2003, after Regalado filed her claim with the EEOC, filed her charge, North American Stainless said, I'm not going to give money this year to the animal shelter, to Mr. Um, Thompson, and I'm not going, going to do it because of Regalado, who is our employee, because she filed a charge of discrimination. I'm not going to do anything to help her. I'm not going to do anything to help him. In that case, under Mr. Schnapper's standard, that any person aggrieved can bring a claim, that person who's not even an employee because they have some kind of injury could bring a claim. Well, but he's, his point was that aggrieved includes not only injury but wrongfulness. It may not be very, I don't know, but it, it, nice, but there's nothing wrongful about North American Stainless deciding it's not going to fund an animal shelter because of some other reason. But it's — but it's treating Regalado with discrimination. It is treating her differently than it might treat another employee because she brought the cause of action. That would be discrimination against Regalado because it's treating her differently. But under but their — You couldn't process, win on that under Burlington. I mean, I think that there are three separate issues here that have to be kept straight. No one can win in court unless they show there was a human being, in this case the woman, who suffered material, who suffered serious harm, serious harm. And serious harm is defined as materially adverse action which might well have dissuaded a reasonable worker from making or supporting a, a charge of discrimination. So unless she suffered that kind of serious harm, nobody wins. Then the next question is suppose in the course of that somebody else was hurt. And the person aggrieved provision suggests, because of the history of the word aggrieved, that more than just she can bring the lawsuit. That's our first question. And then our third question is, if the second question is yes, why can't the whole world do it? At least the, the barber, who doesn't get the haircut anymore because the person fired doesn't have any money, or the r landlord who can't get his rent, or the, the, you know, we can go on indefinitely. Okay? Yes. So why don't we get to the second question? The second question is, what the, the word aggrieved has a history. I think it comes out of, uh, what's the case? It's, uh, I think it comes out of FCC versus Sanders Brothers, which is a 1940 case, which said that sometimes where there's a statute using the word person aggrieved, that that means that a person can bring a lawsuit even though that person does not suffer injury of the type that the statute was meant to prevent against. Yes. That was picked up by the APA. Yes, sir. It says person agreed. Yes. So we have a statute that says person aggrieved. 
Yeah. Maybe it means it in a different sense, or maybe it means it in the APA sense, Sanders Brothers sense, which means in principle this plaintiff can sue. Now, you can argue against that if you want, but, I mean, that's where I'm starting from. And, and then we can have the third part, which is, is there a way of limiting this? Yes, Your Honor. You don't have to. I'm just a question. Yes, Rather long question. And, and you don't even have to agree with, with his description of what Sanders Brothers and the APA say. No, you I don't. Mean, but it would be pretty hard to do that because they're black and white here. Well, I, it, it, isn't there a doctrine of, of uh, the, the, the scope of persons protected under, the, under a particular statute? A- absolutely, do, Your Honor. Doesn't the word person aggrieved bring that, uh, that whole uh, lore along with it? I believe it does, Your Honor. Can we go back to uh, basics? First, uh, you agree that it is unlawful to retaliate in, to retaliate against a person who filed a complaint under Title VII by dismissing a close relative. It is an unlawful employment practice, is it not? I believe it, can, it could meet the standard under Burlington, yes, Your Honor. Do you want to okay. get back to Justice Breyer's question? I don't think you had a chance to respond to it. Yes, Your Honor, thank you. Justice Breyer, I believe your question was the, the scope and what does this term aggrieved mean. And in Sanders' case, the Court said that this term aggrieved um, means something broad, and it is intended to bring a lot of people in. But that case was interpreting the APA, which has specific language. Just like in Traficante, the Court was um, considering the Fair Housing Act, both of which have very different than the statute in, in question. The APA says a person suffering a legal wrong because of an agency action or adversely affected yes. or aggrieved by agency action within a meaning of a relevant statute is entitled to judicial review. And that's much broader than what we have in this case. So we have been looking at whether um, prudential standing rules apply, and we know that Congress legislates against that prudential standing. I'm not sure it's broader. Why do you say it's broader? It says adversely affected, adversely affected or aggrieved within the meaning of the relevant statute. And it's that language that says, well, the statute was only meant to protect this group of people, and the fact that somebody else was incidentally harmed. Would, would not be covered. I don't know why you say that's broader. If anything, it's narrower than what we have here. We just say uh, aggrieved. It doesn't say within the meaning of a relevant statute. You want us to read that into it? Yes. I, w- I believe it should be read into Title Seven because that's the term aggrieved. If someone, if my husband calls and says, oh, my gosh, we've been involved in a car accident, I don't say, honey, are you aggrieved? I say, honey, are you injured? And that's exactly, exactly the definition of aggrieved in the Fair Housing Act. So Congress recognized just four years later after Title VII was adopted when it enacted the Fair Housing Act, and it defined aggrieved and said aggrieved means or includes any person who claims to have been injured. This, and that's is, not, really this is not an, an altogether novel question because it has come up under some other statutes. Uh, you are uh, suggesting that this is carrying a, in, a person aggrieved to new heights, but we have both the NLRB and we have OSHA, and both of those agencies have said that to take adverse action against a close relative is an unfair employment practice, and they've done that for some time, have they not? Yes, Your Honor. And again, we're not saying that discriminating against an employee and taking some kind of action against someone that they loved 
is not an unlawful employment action. It can be. That's not the position that North American Stainless is taking. The question is, is the person who was not discriminated against, the person who was injured by the action, can they bring the cause of action? In Title VII — Go on. I'm sorry. Finish your — Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Burlington makes clear that the interest to be protected with the anti-retaliation provision, and that's what we're talking about. That's that's why this is — see, what what Sanders Brothers did is the interest to be protected against had nothing to do with protecting competitors from competition. The Court says that. Right. And it says, but here is a competitor trying to protect himself from competition. Can he bring a suit? Well, normally not. But Congress used the word person aggrieved or adversely affected, and therefore they can. Now, that's the precedent that, 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 that's harmful to you. I'm not certain. What about the third part? I have a suggestion, and I'd like your response, because I'm just playing with the thought, that the way to limit this is to say that where a person is being used, person B is hurt because in order to retaliate against person A, Okay. That that is a person aggrieved where person B is being is hurt, the injury, the injury to B, not to A, is the means of hurting A. But where it is a consequence of hurting A, that doesn't fall within the statute. That gets rid of the bowling alley, it gets rid of the landlord, it gets rid of uh, uh, the shareholder, it gets rid of uh, all the people who, subs- who, who are not the person retaliated against, but they suffer injury because he was retaliated against. It keeps the people who are being used as a means. They can bring the lawsuit. And I'm sorry, and your question is? If, in fact, you set in motion hurting Mrs. Smith, the child, the wife, even the co-worker, though that would be hard to get past Burlington, uh, if you do that in order to hurt A to retaliate against A, B can bring the suit. But if B is a person who is injured only because you retaliated A but really wasn't the means, B can't bring a suit. But, Your Honor, respectfully, there's no basis in the statute to adopt that That is the problem with my theory. I'm glad I think But there are I, — I do get — I think that it isn't so hard to find in some of the sources that Justice Ginsburg mentioned and others uh, instances where the only kinds of suits that have been allowed are where it was like a family member or was being used as a means. And there never have been cases where they allowed somebody who was just suffering consequent injury. So it's quite possible I can be borne out, though I think your criticism is a pretty good one. Um, if we look at the kinds of cases, um, for example, the Traficante case and um, the other cases under the APA, where Congress has used this broad language um, uh, or has a, a ter- interpreted the term agreed broadly, those cases are the, the nature of those cases, such as um, and with Bennett v. Speer, the Environmental Species Act, or the Blue Shield of Virginia case, which is, was a Sherman Act case, the injury um, or, or the act, the violation, the violation in those cases had the potential to, to inflict harm on a large group of people. So that under Traficante, there were over 8,000 people who lived in the housing complex. Under Bennett v. Speer, um, with the Environmental Species Act, there was more than one person who was adversely affected or potentially was adversely affected. Um, in Blue Cross — I don't see where you're going. The employer has to fire three fiancés or, or a, a larger number of 
No, my point is, is that if we're looking at trying to compare Title VII and whether or not we're going to impose some prudential limitations on the aggrieved language, those statutes are different than the statute well, that we what, have. You know, I don't know what aggrieved means. I don't think anybody does. Uh, why shouldn't we uh, be guided by the EEOC, which has responsibility for implementing this statute? And they've come up with their theory of what it means, and we usually do uh, accede to a reasonable theory proposed by the implementing agency. Why, why shouldn't we do that? Your Honor, this is not a situation like Halawecki, where the Court is trying to determine um, something about a procedure within the EEOC, and that is, what does it mean um, to, for a charge? Because you need some kind of special expertise. Here, the Court is the expert on interpreting, and Thompson even disagrees with the EEOC. The EEOC would say Regalado and Thompson could bring the claim, but Thompson disagrees with that. So it's hard for Thompson to come and say, well, let's do what the EEOC says, when he disagrees with it himself. Well, it's not, it's not 100 percent clear he does. He, th- he th- thought there might be an Article Three impediment. But in, in your brief, I think you suggested that the EEOC doesn't get a whole lot of deference. And you, but the other agencies that I mentioned, where there is this a claim that can be brought by a close relative. The NLRB gets a lot of deference. Uh, the Department of Labor, uh, when we're dealing with Occupational Safety and Health Administration or the Mine Safety, th- those agencies get a, a fair degree of deference, and they come to the same conclusion. I, I agree with that, Your Honor. And, um in this, this I don't know, um, but I believe this to be true, that, for example, with the NLRB um, and with OSHA, they have their own administrative agencies where there would be hearings within um, those agencies versus with Title VII. The EEOC does not, they're not a determiner. Uh, but th- this is a, an interpretation of the substantive meaning of the statute. Yes, Your Honor. It doesn't have to do with... The evidence in particular hearing can a person who is a close relative sue on the grounds that he was injured deliberately so in order to retaliate against his spouse or his fiance? Yes, Your Honor. Um, I, I don't know the distinction between relying on those um, those agencies versus the EEOC, but I do know that in the Burlington Court, this Court noted that um, the EEOC compliance manual, and that's what we're talking about is a compliance manual. We're not talking about a regulation. We're not talking about something else, but a compliance manual. So in your hypothetical, I don't know if we're talking about a compliance manual from um, the NLRB or OSHA, but this is a compliance manual. And in Burlington, this Court noted that there were inconsistencies uh, regarding the anti-retaliation within the compliance manual as to what um, an adverse action meant or what, what would constitute an adverse action. <clears throat> What's the function of the compliance manual? What does it do? Does it say, we'll, we'll leave you alone if you do this? Um, I don't but know they have to leave them alone. There's really nothing the EEOC can do to somebody, right, except uh, what? Can the EEOC take them to court? Yes, they can. Well, so can the Justice Department, but we don't defer, thank goodness, to the Justice Department's interpretation of the criminal law, do we? 
No. Go. <laughs> Your Honor, the concerns from the employment side in this case are um, substantial. Under Thompson's theory of the case, anyone who um, is injured or what he says is aggrieved, anyone who receives injury, becomes a protected party. It's not just bringing the lawsuit, but it's the protected party. He's not even a silent opposer in this case. There There were concerns in Crawford about the silent opposer and how do we know who they are. He says it's based solely upon his relationship. He is engaged in no protected conduct. The silent opposer, assuming they can have bring a claim, at least engaged in some conduct. But Thompson has no protection under the statute. He could have very easily gotten the protection. In our joint appendix, we we <coughs> submitted the brief that Eric or the the memo that Eric Thompson submitted to his supervisor just shortly before his terminated. He complains in that memo about his compensation, and this is on page 22 and 23 of the joint appendix. He 20, says, "22 and 23 of the joint appendix." Okay. He says in this memo, um, "I am disappointed in compensation this year." At the time that he. Um, submitted this memo to his supervisor, his fiancée had a complaint or a charge with the EEOC pending. If he had only come forward in this memo, Congress says you would have gotten protection. If he had come forward and said, and by the way, I think the way you treat my wife is discriminatory, he would have gotten protection. The, the means by which employees get protection under the statute are not very difficult. All they have to do is to come forward and oppose. Thompson clearly had an avenue and a means to do that because he was taking um, he was taking action on his own behalf to complain. So Thompson wants to bring a claim under for Regalado, but he couldn't at that time come forward and step up to the plate and um, say to the employer, "Hey, I have a problem with this." But yet he wants to come into court and to claim his rights or to claim her rights as a basis to bring this suit. According to the EEOC statistics, in 1992, when data first began being collected, 14.5 percent of charges filed with the EEOC were retaliation claims. By 2009, that had risen by 31 percent. In the Chamber's brief on page 2, they submit or or recite to a study um, that was published in 1994, saying that the average cost to defend an employment litigation in 1994, when the study was published, was $120,000. In this case, what Thompson would propose is to give protected party to a wide range of people. And with respect to the government's position today, at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, they advocated that there would be no limitation, that everyone would get the protection. That's a broad, that is a lot of protection for people. And I can tell you that employers who are faced with someone in a protected party, um, they are, um, employers are reluctant to take adverse decisions against them. They're reluctant um, to implement discipline. They will um, postpone implementing that decision because they know that at some point they're going to have to establish a legitimate non-discriminatory reason. When we... When we point out, when we point this out um, in our arguments, the response by Eric Thompson as, as to who gets the protection, it's in his footnote on page four of his reply. He says that the identity of individuals who might have a claim is a function of the employer's own intent. So in other words, in order to determine whether someone has protection, you have to look at the employer's intent. So there are no protected parties anymore until the employer can establish that they had no intent, or or the other way. Everyone is a protected party until the employer can show that he had no intent. So what that means at the trial is that there will never be 
I'm not sure why the employer's intent comes into this. A is the person who is being retaliated against. And the issue would be, did the employer take such action against B as the A would think, quite reasonably, he'd have to reasonably think that the action that the employer took was retaliation, was meant to be whatever those words were, was, was, uh, uh, might well have dissuaded a reasonable worker from making or supporting a charge of discrimination. But the position that's set forward by Thompson is you determine whether someone is a protected party by looking at the intent of the employer. Well, you'd have to show he had a retaliatory intent. That's true. But that's true however he retaliates. That's true at trial, though, after a plaintiff gets past his initial burden of proof. And in this case, a plaintiff is going to be able to establish their burden of proof solely by saying that they were a protected party and there was intent on the other side. That is going to shift the burden to the employer at the outset of the case to prove that there was no retaliation, that there was no intent. Your Honor, in conclusion, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals was correct. The Sixth Circuit determined that Eric Thompson, who was not discriminated against, had no protection under the statute. This Court clearly held in Burlington that the anti-retaliation provision of Title VII is designed to protect employees um, based upon what they do, based upon their conduct. In this case, Eric Thompson engaged in none of that behavior. He had no conduct. Um, He did not come forward on behalf of anyone, yet he is here asking for remedies, remedies that really should belong to Regalado. There's no reason that Regalado could not have brought this case. uh, If the concern is that employers are going to discriminate against employees, the, the response to that is employers will still be held liable and can still be held liable, and that is by the person who was discriminated against from bringing the suit. We ask that the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals decision be affirmed. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Schaper, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a couple of quick points. Mr. Um, Schnapper, in the, in the points that you're making, would you in, in have an answer to the, this uh, point that was made? about the burden of proof. I mean, the argument was that you wouldn't have McDonnell Douglas anymore and you wouldn't know how to proceed on this third-party claim. Um, uh, Your Honor, McDonnell Douglas, uh, the particular formula in McDonnell Douglas was for hiring cases. Uh, The courts have readily adapted it to other kinds of cases uh, where, the, uh, depending on the nature of the claim, the plaintiff produces some minimal amount of information, and the employer is required to to articulate a reason. Uh, but I don't think it would be a, a problem here. Um, getting back to the question that was asked, I think I'm not sure why not. What? I'm not sure why not. Plaintiff comes in and says, "I engaged in protected activity." Well, the probably reta- the other person did. The, the other person did. Um, they retaliated against me. How do you what? then the employer always has the burden to come forth and give an explanation as to why. What would be the prima facie case generally is they've treated me differently than similarly situated people. Um, I complained at a time close to my firing. There's well, there, there'd a have whole to series be, of prima facie right, elements. There, there'd have to be some evidence that could plausibly give rise to, a, to an inference of motive. Even if I were complaining that I was retaliated against, I can't just come in and say, I engaged in protected activity and was fired. I would need more than that. So you would need that additional amount here. Plus, you'd also have to have some evidence to give rise to an inference 
that this third party was selected as a victim. So it wouldn't — you could — you could adapt it. But to get back to what was asked earlier, there's no question the burden of proof is on the plaintiff at all times to establish motive. And um, as we get particularly far afield from uh, a family members, someone closely associated with the plaintiff, it is going to be difficult to, to establish uh, — to meet that burden. What, uh, happens in the, what happens in the animal shelter hypothetical that your friend proposed? You know, the North American stainless or uh, — Funds the animal shelter of the, 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 where the wife uh, works, and they cut off their funding uh, as a means, presumably. Of I don't. I don't. I think this court's decision in Burlington Northern makes it clear that the plaintiff wouldn't have to be an employee. The, in that case, one of the questions was, could you retaliate an, against an FBI agent by not protecting his wife from being murdered? Mm-hmm. I think that would be a pretty good way to to keep people from complaining. Uh, but I, I think the Burlington Northern limitation uh, would, you know, would, would have some traction uh, in these cases. Uh, animal shelter seems unlikely. But the burden of proof is there as the, as the relationship becomes more attenuated once you cast, get past family members. I think it's going to be difficult, even at summary judgment, uh, to, for these cases to survive. And Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.